I, I haven't served in the military, and um, but I am so grateful for those that have and made it possible that we can worship like we are today in freedom. Like it, it is a big deal. Uh, even the ability to worship out in the parking lot, like our first service people did, it's a, it's a big deal. We have so much to be grateful for and thankful for in this nation, and, and I'm truly grateful. When I was 10 years old, it, my freedom hit home. I realized what I had. And my parents had this bright idea that we were going to smuggle Bibles into China. And I was 10 years old. And, and I got caught. It was a little scary. The customs agent said, I can take your son away from you, and you're never going to see him again. Why would you do something like this? And my dad's response is because we want to give the gospel to a lost people that don't have it. And he couldn't quite understand that. He let us go. We were Americans. They weren't going to do anything to us anyway. We gave these Bibles to a number of underground churches. They, you can't have a... This is you know, back in the day, back in the late 80s, when communist China was at its height and censorship was at its height, and you weren't allowed to have a Bible and you could not do church. And so the church was underground in secret places, in the backs of restaurants or in somebody's house, done in secret. Their worship services were a little different than ours. They went all day long. Maybe we'll get there someday. Maybe today. <laughs> no, <laughs> But they just had a different value and a preciousness. There was even... There was even um, Chinese churches when they worshipped because of the threat of life. They wouldn't let their vocal cords vibrate, so they would just mouth the worship song so you couldn't hear it. But I guarantee you their worship was just as powerful in silence than our worship is with amplifiers and speakers and lights. The condition of the heart. Two young men that we gave these Bibles to, they took them into the underground church and into the interior. They were so excited to have them, to have the Word of God in their hands. And we did our thing, and my dad did his preaching, and we ministered to the poor. and to, it, it, was a, it was an amazing time. It marked me for my entire life, that missions trip. But by the time we got home, those two young ministers that we'd given our Bibles to, um, they got caught, and they were gunned down in an alley. My dad named two of his fish after those guys. So just, we have so much to be grateful for and thankful for in these freedoms. Jesus says something very powerful that reflects that video that we watched, is that there is no greater love than for a man or for a woman to lay down his life for his friends. That teaching of Jesus Christ is in our nation's DNA. And that's why we sit here free today. Maybe that will give us pause. That, that statement of Jesus, there's no greater love than laying down your life for someone else. Maybe that will give you pause the next time you want to debate somebody. 
Next time you want to get into a, a little argument or bicker about something or quarrel, maybe that will give you pause to think. Is this really worth fighting about right now? No one's chopping our heads off. No one's persecuting us. Maybe low-grade, you know, persecution, but it's nothing like the early church went through. It's nothing like the underground churches go through or our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. It's nothing like that. We're so blessed, everybody. So we have a lot to be thankful for. A government that is fought for our freedoms and your brothers and sisters and friends and family that have served. My, my family has served, and I'm so grateful for what they've done. All right, um, Book of James. I love this book. And one of the, one of the, the prompts that drew me into a study on this specific book was James 4.8. James, in and of itself, is wisdom, literature, the New Testaments, in a sense. There's a lot of good one-liners. There's a lot of good zingers. There is, it's very practical. It, 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 James comes right out and says it. He's an amazing leader. He knows what his people need. He's writing to a group of of people, the 12 tribes of Israel that have been converted to Christianity. He's writing to a new people that are under persecution. And they're scattered. And the interesting thing about James is when he writes this letter to them, he's, he's going after their interior life. He's going after their lifestyle, their behaviors, what they're practicing, their habits, their character. He's going after that. He's not going after the big picture, everybody. He has every right to go after the big picture, but you know, he's more concerned about speaking to you as an individual rather than all of the peripheral issues that in their time was a big deal. He doesn't focus on that. Today we're going to see what he's focusing on. He's focusing on quarreling as one of the many things. Two weeks ago I talked about anger. Last week Sasha Peary preached on peace and the taming of the tongue. These, these three messages, they dovetail very well together. And I want to encourage you to watch Sasha's last week's sermon 100% for sure. It'll wreck your life I'm in a good way. When I say wreck your life, I mean that in a good way. It will challenge you. It might convict you. There was so much truth, and the perspective from her was amazing. So today we're talking about the issue of quarreling. Why that thing is a bad thing, and why we need to pay attention to it. What, again, what drew me to James was Philippians 4.8. And it says, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands or wash your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Okay, so that's, now you can kind of see the personality and the character of James. He just kind of tells you like it is. He's going to let you have it. Why this, why this verse 
attracted me to study and to preach this entire book is because, well, that's an, I mean, it may, it's very practical, right? But it also pushes on something very important. It pushes on, on your theology. It can. It can push on your Christian theology. So if I wait, draw near to God and then he's going to draw near to me, that's a true statement. I want everybody to know that that's true. But what also is true is that it is God himself that calls men and women to repentance. It is God that made the first move. God first loved us. He made the first move. So is it, is it a contradiction? No, it's not. Wash your hands, you sinners. One of my favorite Shakespeare plays is... Uh, Macbeth. Remember Macbeth? Remember he had to suffer through that in high school? I loved it. The raven himself is horse that croaks the fatal entrance of Duncan. Under my battlements come you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts and unsex me here, fill me with direst cruelty. This is what Lady Macbeth says as she's trying to convince her husband to murder the king so she can be queen. And it happens. It takes place. And you do know this one. You know it from popular culture. As after she has manipulated her husband to murder, she realizes that the blood is on her own hands. And what does she say as she's in the bathroom washing her hands? She says, out damn spot. But we know the story. It doesn't come out, and it drives her mad. She's got blood on her hands. Like, the gospel message is pretty clear. It, Jesus is the one that washes away our sins. No matter how hard we scrub, we can't get it off our hands. And yet James just tells us right here, wash your, wash your hands, you sinners. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus is the one that does that for us. You guys okay? All right. Purify your hearts, you double-minded Jesus is, I thought the Holy Spirit comes into my heart and does the work. I have to do the work? See, James is a little bit of a controversial book. They call it the works book, and they'll call the writings of Paul the grace books. The great reformer Martin Luther, he didn't even want to include this book in the Bible. You can't do that, by the way. You can't just decide that you want to cut something out because you don't like it. It doesn't work that way. No, no, if you read it in its context, if you read the whole book, all five chapters of it, it's not very big. If you read it in context with the gospel messages, and if you read it in context with Paul's writings, you will see that the scripture is absolutely beautiful. There's no contradiction at all whatsoever. They complement each other. Where Paul might be heading into some theological issues that we are saved not by our own works, but we're saved by grace through faith. It's a theological statement and it's true. James will say, you show me your faith, I'll show you my works. He's just basically saying, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. It's, it's beautiful. And they go together. So where 
Paul is hashing out some theological truths based off the gospel messages. James is he's James. This is not necessarily a theological book. This is a practical book for everyday Christian life. This is how we should be and how we should act. And he just comes out and says it. It's very sobering. So, yes, you can take out a lot of these one-liner zingers. You can apply them to your life. You can be doers of the word and not only hearers of the word. You can take that out and you can use that anywhere you want. But I want to encourage you to read the whole book, everybody. Does that make sense? Get the richness of it. Pure and undefiled religion, James tells us, takes care of the poor the widow, and the orphan. True statement. Pull it out of context. Use it whenever you want. But the better thing to do is to understand the whole book in the context of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And that is what we are getting into today. And so, 4.8. I'm going to give a little bit of an answer to that question. Because we're going to read it in context. Now, Bear with me. I'm going to read all of James right now. It doesn't require a whole lot of interpretation. Again, he comes out and says it. You don't, in order to understand what he's saying in this chapter, you really don't need a preacher or a theologian to explain it to you. I'm going to read the Word of God. This is a really cool Word of God because not only is it the inspired Word of God, it is literally written by the brother of the Lord. It's cool. Like, this is, this is about as good as it gets. Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? That's how he starts off. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. All right, full stop right there. What causes quarrels? What causes divisions? What causes fights? Um, why are you so upset? Why are you, why are you quarreling? Huh? Why are you picking fights with people? Is it the weather? Is it the environment? Is it the political situation? No, I know what it is. It's what your wife did to you the other day. Or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's the man. When I say the man, I'm saying your boss. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe that's why you're quarreling. It's not your fault. It's everybody else's fault. It's every situation's fault. It's the government's fault. That is the exact opposite of what James is saying. The reason why we quarrel is because of what is taking place inside of you. That's why you quarrel. It's not external situations. It's not the environment. It's you. Ooh, dang. I told you this was very specific, written to you. If I was writing this, I would say, you know what causes quarrels and fights among you? It's that evil Roman Empire. That would make more sense in their context. James goes deeper. You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Here's another one-liner that's great. Put it into context. You don't have 
because you don't ask. You've heard me quote that out of context a million times. You don't have because you don't ask. So why don't you start asking God for things? We're putting this scripture into context. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly with bad motivations and you spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Uh, the ESV translation's a little soft on this, by the way. Passions is very base here in the language. Adulterous. Basically, he's saying you're cheating on God. And enmity, probably the correct word, is hatred towards God. God forgive us if we're heading down this path. If you hold any animosity towards God, if it, if it manifests in hatred of God, we've got some deliverance for you because the good news is, is that God's a good God and he has an affection for you that you don't quite understand. One of the best parts about my job, I love my job. I love all the little different working pieces of it. It's a beautiful thing to be a pastor. If you're called to be a pastor, you just let's talk. It's a beautiful thing. The best part of the job is when the Lord tells me how he feels about you. It's great. Like, this is freshly spoken word stuff, everybody, by the way. I just got this during worship this morning. And God is, I mean, again, this is like going to be some heavy weed pulling stuff. It's character building stuff. But this is what you need to know about the goodness of God is he loves you so much and he cares and he's got, there is a new thing coming for everybody here. There is a new, there's going to be a freshly spoken direction. Some of your lives are going to change. Some of you are going to move. God's inviting you into the adventure. Some of you that have been faithful during some very strange times, uh, you've planted the right seed. I get to see that stuff, how God feels about you. He's crazy about you. He thinks that you are worth every penny. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Okay, that's a little, that's a little awkward, but it's kind of basically what I said. God, God's crazy about the spirit that's inside of you. He, if you are a believer, if you stepped across the line of faith, you have been imparted with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is dwelling and living inside of you, changing you, rebuilding you from the inside out. It's a great work that he's doing, and you're getting better each and every day if you've submitted yourself to this process. And so whenever we go off the rails a little bit, he gets, the Lord gets a little jealous because he knows what your potential is. He knows how he's designed you, and he knows what your future is. So he gets a little jealous. 
Maybe more on that later. But he gives us more grace. Can everybody just say more grace? I mean, again, this is the works-based book, right? This is the one that says faith without works is dead. But right here in the middle, right here in the meat of everything that he's saying when he's like nailing you right between the eyes, he says, I'm going to give you more grace. You're freaking out? I've got grace for that. You're broke? I've got grace for that. You're hurt? I've got, bro- I got grace for that. I have an empowering. I already saved you with my grace, and now I'm going to empower you with grace. There's more grace. There's more dimensions. There's other facets, facets of grace that we don't understand. He's going to give it more. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. You draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Ready for this? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Oh, my goodness. Okay, just so so you know, if you've read this in context, you'll know that this is the same guy that starts off this book by saying, consider everything joy, right? Okay, so that help? Does that help? It says, consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you go through trials and tribulations and hardships, whenever you fall, whenever you get up, and you need to make sure you're considering everything joy. What does he mean by this? I'll tell you in a second. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. You need to go high? Let's just start going low. I'm going to skip 11 through 12 because I preached on that a couple weeks ago. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town, and we'll spend a year there, we'll buy some Bitcoin, and trade, make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Amen? You don't know. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Did a lot of funerals this year. They didn't know what was going to happen. You don't know what's really important. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Like There was a song in the 70s called Dust in the Wind. It was really good. They stole it from this. Instead, you ought to say... If the Lord wills, we will live, and we will go and do that. If the Lord wills, we will go and do this. If the Lord wills, I'll start that job. If the Lord wills, I'll move to Texas. That's not the Lord's will, everybody. Like, if you've been praying about moving to Texas, your pastor is saying that's a terrible idea. Thus saith the Lord. The only thing that could be worse is Idaho. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I just don't want, I don't want to lose you guys. But if it is the Lord's will, submit yourselves to him. 
with humility. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Okay, if you know what's right and you don't want to do it, uh, again, James doesn't pull any punches. He just says you're sinning. Good, good times, huh? It's actually really encouraging. It actually, I mean, it seems heavy, but I want to show you there's grace in that. There's a huge amount of grace in that. Like, if you know the right thing to do and you fail to do it, for him it's sin. Like, I know it's not a good thing for me to have an affair on my wife. That would be sin. That applies to you, too. But if the Lord has spoken to me as an individual, saying that, I don't know, maybe you watch too much TV, Josh. And I know that that's what God's told me to do, and I choose not to do it. Guess what? That's sin, and it's in the same category as some of the big ones. They're all the same. But you are, oh gosh, this is going to sound terrible. All right, let me get off my high horse for a second. This is going to sound terrible. I'm called to a higher standard than you are because I'm preaching the word of God. So I can't do some of the same things that you guys do, and our elders can't do some of the same things that you guys do, and I can't act out in the way that I want to because well, my life is not my own. I got some great opinions, and I would love to share them with you, but unfortunately, my life is not my own. I'm submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So I have to put every thought, every imagination, every ambition that I have, and I have to submit it to the Lord. You guys are just... I'm at, does it sound like arrogance to me? I'm not trying to be arrogant at all. Like, this, 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 first, that's like part of the message right now. <laughs> but I have to make sure from where I'm at and where God has put me that I draw close to him. Like, that's my lifestyle. That's my Christian walk. I choose to draw close to him in each and every situation, and he draws close to me. I make it a habit and a Christian lifestyle to wash my hands. And I purify my heart. This is the lifestyle. Jesus actually does all the work. But I have to go into partnership with his truth. I have to do the heavy lifting. I have to, I have, to have faith that works. So, again, this scripture, it, it preaches itself. Read chapter 4 again on your own. It will tell you what to do. It doesn't require a whole lot of interpretation, but I've got some outline notes to hopefully help you walk through it, to give you some practical points and to highlight some very specific things. As we read when we started off with verse 4, the topic is quarreling. Quarreling, fighting, arguing, bickering nagging. Sasha went after nagging last week. That's why you got to listen to her message. Brilliant. 
what causes quarrels. And the fill-in there is a continual self, a continual selfish desire that is inside of me. James 4.1, this is a different translation. What causes quarreling and arguments among you with each of you? They come from a conflicting selfish desire that are always fighting inside. Galatians 5.17 says, Our sinful desires want what is opposite of God's Spirit. So what our, nat- what our, our, our natural man, our natural woman, our sinful, our, our cravings, it's the opposite of what God's Spirit is. And God's Spirit wants what is contrary to our sinful desires. So the two are constantly fighting each other. And so you cannot just do whatever you please. There's the Christian walk right there. You can't do whatever you please. I know that's a hard thing for us Americans to hear because no one can tell us what to do. But if you're submitted to the Lord, you have to allow him to tell you what to do. Talking about another kingdom that is not of this world, it's upside down. Jesus is the king, and it makes no sense from our perspective, but it is the most powerful force in the universe, and Jesus runs it. Number one, what helps you to quarrel less? I want to quarrel less. I got to stop quarreling. I got to stop nagging. I got to stop finding fault in other people. What causes you to quarrel less? Number one, we need to realize how destructive quarreling can be. You might think it's your national pastime to argue, but it's destructive. It's, it's hurtful. It's woundful. It does not build up. Quarreling always destroys. And quarreling is a little bit different than physical fighting. Physical fighting, obviously, there's, there's a physical thing, but quarreling is, what we're talking about is specifically with people that you know and people that you love and that you're in a relationship with, yeah? I'm not talking about the bad guy here. I'm talking about your spouse. I'm talking about your kids. I'm talking about your coworkers. The little naggy things that we find ourselves getting into that, where we in, intentionally or even unintentionally hurt one another. It's destructive. Ephesians 4.31 says, Quarreling, harsh words, and dislike of others should have no place in your life. Next fill-in. Quarreling is a sub-point. Quarreling is a mark of immaturity. That's tough to hear, right? Quarreling is a mark of immaturity, of emotional immaturity. The American Psychological Society, that is one of their markers when they're going after and they're testing people for emotionally immaturity. Like, how much do you quarrel on a daily basis? How much do you quarrel on an hourly basis? It will show you where your maturity level is. And the irony of it, it's just not the psychologist that figured it out. The Word of God figured it out 2,000 years ago. 1 Corinthians 3.3 says, You are still only baby Christians controlled by your own desires, not God's. When you are jealous, 
and divide into quarreling groups, doesn't that prove that you are still babies? Wanting your own way? In fact, you are acting like people who don't even belong to the Lord. Ouch. See, I guess Paul and James team up when they start speaking hard truths. So, how do we grow in maturity? How do we stop this quarreling? Number two is we need to decide. Decide I want to change. You've got to decide you want to make a change. Like if you're recognizing this in your own life, you've got to decide that you want to make a change and ask for forgiveness. So let's go into the context of verse 4-8 that started this whole journey with us where I was curious about what James was actually talking about. I love the fact, I love that statement. Wash your hands, you sinners. So what's he talking about here? Now, in, again, you pull it out, great scripture. Like you could use this, use this on anyone. Like go down and minister to the poor and say, hey, wash your hands, you sinners. Like, you know, if you're a COVID compliance officer, you pull out this verse. Wash your hands, you sinners. It works. But in its context, this is what he's going after. He started off with quarreling. He's talking about specifically washing your hands in your personal relationships with one another. Wash your hands from the quarreling and the nagging and the bickering. The washing of the hands is an external thing. You are washing the stuff. You're washing that damn spot off your hands. You're washing those bad attitudes and those negativities and the, the snipiness, the sarcasm, the cynicism. You're washing that stuff off. We call it pulling your own weeds. You're taking care of your own business. You're, you're, you're choosing to become mature. It's the external things that you do that is not only keeping you in a quarrelsome state, it is your external things that you do that might be driving everybody else around you crazy. It is your habits, it's your behaviors, it's the way that you talk, the number of different things that could, could be. And so in this context, when James says, wash your hands, he's saying, get, get your, how you carry yourself and what you do and your habits, get those under control, everybody. Submit those things to the Lord. Submit your external life Make it obedient to the Lord. Purify your hearts. Where is your heart? Is your heart on the outside? Your heart's on the inside. It's fascinating. James is absolutely fascinating here. He's saying you've got to do two things. There's another side of the coin. Yeah, you've got to take care of your external life. You need to make sure you're not saying certain things, you're not acting a certain way, that your habits are under control, that your lifestyle reflects what the Gospels are saying. But in addition to that, he says, purify your heart, meaning that he's saying you just need to go deep. You need to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and begin the transformation process from the inside out. You've got to have both going on at the same time. Like we can get your habits straightened up. We can get your behavior straightened up. But if you don't have the presence of God in you, you're just a good person. Be an empowered person. Don't just be a morally superior person. Be a child of God, made in his likeness and in his image. Drawing near to God, 
and he will draw near to you. Like I said earlier, God's the one that's called you. God's the one that's moving towards you. The scriptures say that he's, he's like a, a mother hen that's gathering up her children to care for and protect. He says that he is like a dedicated uh, housewife that's searching the floor for treasure for you. This is God's moving towards you. So what does it mean to draw near to God and he'll draw near to you? Is that conditional? Not necessarily. What I believe that it is saying is, in your time of need, you draw, you mentally draw near to God. In the midst of quarreling, you have a tool, and that is drawing near to God. Ladies, you can do this. You can hit it out of the park because you guys know how to multitask. I have a harder time with this because I can't walk and chew gum at the same time. I have to be focused on one conversation. I might be able to daydream, but that's pretty much all that's going on. Not a whole lot of complexity going on up here. But all of us have the ability. Guys, I'm giving us a hard time, but we're a little bit better than that. All of us have this ability to have a conversation with somebody and have another conversation going on in our mind at the same time. Can you do this? Next time you find yourself in a quarrel, in a little tiss, frustrated with your kids or your parents, and you feel your, your natural man or your natural woman begin to bubble up, you feel that, again, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, you feel the anger begin to take place and you feel your mouth begin to loosen up and you want to start lashing out. Okay, before that happens, in, during the midst of a conversation, have a conversation with God. You can do this. You draw near to God in the midst of a quarrel, and he will draw near to you. He will change your heart in an instant. And he will give you the right words to say and not your words. Amen? This will save your marriage, everybody. This will help you raise your kids. This inner dialogue with God in the midst of a heated situation will help you in your career. It might even get you a promotion. Draw near to God. He is faithful and he'll always draw near to you in the midst of your hardest conversations. And ask God for forgiveness, which is humility. Number three, Okay, hang on. Stop expecting people or things. Stop expecting people or things to fulfill your needs in your life that only God can fulfill. Oh my goodness, I know I got something to say about this one. Young people, when they're about to get married, we have been told by Jerry Maguire that she will complete me. You complete me. Is this a romantic love thing, right? I'm not bashing love. I, I, like, I, like, I like romance. I'm all for marriage. I think it's a great thing. But everybody here that's married knows that your spouse does not complete you. They do not define you. They do not, they do not make you who you are. They, they, don't, they don't complete you. They can be your partner in crime for life, which is what my wife and I have. We're connected. We are of one flesh. But I can't find my 
source of security in my spouse. You guys get this? You can't find it in your kids. A lot of parents live vicariously through their own children. Like they think that somehow their children are going to complete their life's mission if they get signed with the NFL or something like that. We're all jacked up, amen? So people will not meet your needs. No person ever will meet your personal needs. There's only one person that can do that, and that's Jesus. Likewise, stuff, things, the things that you desire deep down inside, it isn't going to make you happy. It will not fulfill you. You might get a, you might get a quick hit or a quick rush. You might like it. Like, like, I'm an antique dealer. I love junk. I love things. I get competitive with junk that I don't need to have. I like it. But like, like dealing with collectors and dealing with high valuable objects over the years, I had the, I've had the opportunity to hang out with rich people, either selling them junk at high prices, or when I was in the museum industry, we're dealing with donors and, and the such. You want in on a little secret? You want in on a little secret? Rich folk that have stuff, they're not happy. The boats don't do it for them. The multiple cars, it doesn't do it for them. They're just as jacked up as you are. That's, the stuff won't make you happy. They just maybe worked a little harder, cheated on their taxes, got lucky, got an inheritance. There's really not that much difference between them and you. Your fulfillment won't be coming, won't be coming from things or people. It comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. This is one that, again, we throw out all the time. You don't have because you don't ask God for it. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. So we ask God for what we really need instead of what we really want. He's going to give you himself. It's amazing. It's the best gift in the world. Number four. I'm quarreling less. Okay, choose humility over pride. Amen? Choose humility over pride. We can add to the pride thing. Spiritual pride, financial pride, social pride, career pride, family pride, uh, I don't know, sports team stuff, or whatever you, you, you fill in the gap. What pride do you deal with? And the truth of the matter is everybody has a pride. And by the way, if you don't know, pride's a bad thing. Like, I want to... Pride in what you do, being happy with what, you're, what you do at work, that's one thing. But when the Bible's talking about pride in this case, this is why we need theologians to help us, you know, de- decipher this stuff. Like, I want you to be proud about the work you do at your work. That's different. God wants you to do it too. There is a theology of work that's very healthy. We are to work so that we can eat. We are to work for the kingdom of God. It's, it's vital. Take pride in what you do. But the pride that he's talking about here is the pride that goes all the way back down to the very creation and the first fall when Satan himself had this pride in his heart and it boils down to this one simple impulse. 
I can do things on my own. I don't need God to help me. I do not need to submit. That's the original sin, everybody. This is the original pride that Satan had. And it comes and it boils up inside of us. I, I, I deal with it. I don't like people helping me out. It's a, it's a pride thing that I have to deal with. Just the other day, I realized that I had to pick up my daughter from work or from school. Excuse me? Work? She's not working yet. As soon as she can, she will. Um, <laughs> and Mako's seeing a friend in Orange County, and I left my keys in her car. All right? And I just discovered this truth five minutes before I'm supposed to pick up my kid from school. I got my dad's beater truck here at the church. So, I am too prideful to pick up the phone and ask Jennifer or Teresa or anybody else that lives in Claremont to come and pick me up and take me to get my child. I know. Look at Jen. She sees it. I, like, this is, a, this, is, this is something that is inside of me. It's like, I, I don't need anybody to help me. I'm confessing to it. Maybe you should confess to it, too. I don't need anybody's help. I'm an independent, self-sufficient person. I'll solve this problem all by myself. And I did. And I got on my bike, and I rode my bike 10 miles. <laughs> I rode my bike 10 miles from my house all the way to the church, and it was that hot day last week where it was 100-something degrees, and I'm dying. And I showed up 30 minutes late to find my kid just because I couldn't ask anybody to help me. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So what's your pride? What, 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 what is the thing that like, you know, you're willing to be stubborn about? You dig your heels in. You're ready to die on hill for. Is it really worth it? What does it say? Humble yourselves. Pride leads, leads to quarrels. So you've got your position. You're going to stick to it. Good for you. You're going to fight about something. It's going to lead to a quarrel. Humility is the answer. 4.6 says, God opposes the prideful. Okay, so he's, he opposes. Like in that moment, God was opposing me. He made it extra hot on my bike ride, home, by my bike ride here. He's opposing me. Like you, pride will, will oppose God. It will, look, I want to be blessed by God, but my pride will keep God from blessing me because I'm holding God's hand back. God opposes the prideful, but he gives, what do we need? Grace to the humble. So give yourselves completely to God. If you humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. Humility is a great thing, everybody. Ask God what your pride push is. For most preachers, it's spiritual pride. I'll just let you in on that. Like we think we have all the answers. We went to seminary. We're right. You're wrong, right? I have a pastor friend confessed to me a while back. Oh, it's running late. I'm sorry. Right, one last story. I'm out. I'll, I'll wrap this up. That's my dog. <laughs> so, 
my pastor friend says, he, he left his church, started his own church. He was right. The other pastor was wrong. They were quarreling. It was an ugly split. Uh, hard to find God in that move. And then he says to me, as we're like walking through this, talking through this thing, because it was, it was icky stuff, right? He says to me, I thrive off of conflict. And it wasn't a confession. He was actually proud about that. I'm like, whoa, dude, that's not going to work out for you. Uh, have, have you read Timothy? The book of Timothy gives clear instruction on what pastors, the code of conduct for pastors, the requirement for a pastor slash elder. So it applies to our elders too, by the way. We're not allowed to quarrel. Paul says there should be no quarreling in you. It can't be a character trait. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. And for, then I get it because this is human nature. Like sometimes if I need motivation, if I need some drive, if I need some change, what do we do? We stir the pot up. And that quarreling, there's power in quarreling. It will give you motivation to fight. It will give you motivation to get things done, to get something accomplished, to push on through. The only problem is, is it's satanic. You, you okay? <laughs> Woo! Okay. All right. Watch Sasha's message. She, she does a better job talking about that than I do. Okay, number five, last one, we'll be done. Recognize the source behind hurtful words. To quarrel less, you need to know where this quarreling's come from. Like, I'm sure you've got a great vocabulary, a lot of horrible things that you could tell your spouse or your, your boss or whatever. You have a, a, a great, you know, wealth of information, and you know how to hurt people. I know how to hurt my wife. I could destroy my wife today if I wanted to. I know all the right words and the right buttons to push and the right history to bring up. But uh, um, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not do that. Love is kind. Love does not rejoice in evil. It keep, love keeps no record of wrong. Amen, married folk? Love keeps no record of wrong. Forgive and move on. When you are in a disagreement with your spouse, the enemy of God will use whatever... Uh, emotional immaturity that we talked about. Remember, quarreling is a sign of emotional immaturity, and the, the, the enemy of God will attach a negative spirit onto your emotional dysfunction. Now, we don't have the right in this church or in the, God, in the kingdom of heaven to blame our issues and our sins and our failures on the devil. Let's not give him that much credit. But what I do want you to do is I want you to recognize where it comes from. You get this really dark thought in your mind when you are quarreling with somebody and you want to lash out, you want to say it, you have no control over your mouth. Do you know where it comes from? It comes from Beelzebub himself, the devil. It is, it is satanic. It is demonic. The, the, the enemy of God he has sent his dominions. Yeah, there's a God. He's real. Jesus is real. Holy Spirit is real. 
devil's real, and so are his demons, and they have been assigned to you to make sure that you continue quarreling. He likes it. That's what they eat for breakfast, these little demons. They just serve up another bowl of Cheerios and quarreling. They love it. They'll eat it all day long. So just, let's just not feed them anymore. Those hurtful words, if you recognize, if you hold every thought captive, if you do the battlefield of the mind, if you know that your thoughts are not always your thoughts, that sometimes they are evil spirits coming in and telling you what to say and who to hurt and how to hurt them. If you recognize that, you'll have power over the enemy and the prince of the air. Ephesians 4.27 says, Anger gives a mighty foothold to the devil. You're harboring anger issues, unforgiveness, rage. You've given a foothold to the devil. And I don't care what it is. If it's anger, if it's quarreling, it's a foothold. But here's the hope. Resist the devil, and what? He'll flee from you. He'll flee from you. So the next time you get into a fight, they're going to come. You're going to get into a disagreement. Don't allow that disagreement to turn into a quarrel. Yeah? You get into a disagreement. You hold every thought captive. You go into a dual conversation. You have a conversation with the person standing in front of you, but you also have a conversation with God. You draw near to God. He's going to draw near to you. He's going to give you the right words to say and how to handle a tense situation. God is so good, everybody. And we can do this. His grace is sufficient. He gives us more grace. And yet, we need to wash our hands, manage our external relationships well. We need to purify our hearts Meaning we're doing exactly what you were doing right, what you are doing right now, dedicating this time to the Lord, making it sacred, making it holy, worshiping God, humili- humbly coming before the cross and saying, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Help me to become a saint. That is how good he is. He is so kind. He wants you to live in the atmosphere of peace and joy and hope, come what may. Like There's going to be some difficult things that are going to take place in your life. You're going to have people that have pride that you're going to have to deal with. You're going to go through loss and hurt. Your environment will put so much pressure and stress and crisis on you. You're going to feel like you can't bear it. But we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. He will lift us up if we humble ourselves before. He will give us the power and the strength to overcome any obstacle. He is that good. He is so kind. He's kind enough to tell us things that might be hard to hear that will challenge us to become better people. And he just wants you just to be a little bit better tomorrow than you are today. And that's the gospel message, everybody. you stand? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for Memorial Day. I thank you for sending your son, Jesus, that he paid the ultimate price for true freedom, that he sacrificed himself 
so that we could not only live free, but we could go into eternity knowing you. So I'm going to say a prayer over two different types of people today. God, right now, me included, I ask that you just forgive us of the pride of life, and then you just walk us into humility. God, if there's some that need to limp a little bit, let us limp a little bit so that we can truly know who you are and humbly walk. For those of us that need to know this Jesus, we need to not just get better, but we need to know him. God, I just pray right now that you move in their hearts. For both groups, Heavenly Father, I just rededicate my life to you. You can just repeat this in your head. God, I just rededicate my life to you. You have called me your son. You have called me your daughter. You've called me into this glorious light. And yet today, I recommit my life to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I, and I submit to your lordship and no one else's. Not even my own. If you want to know Jesus, say, God... I want you to be the Lord of my life. Jesus, I recognize the work that you did on the cross, and I want to take a step closer to that. Show me your salvation grace through faith this morning. If you made that decision, or if you need prayer, if you need to be baptized, your bulletins have a little card, drop it in the box. We'll put you on the baptism calendar. We'd love to celebrate with you. We love you, Lord. Amen.